Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts to receive the good word that you've given to our pastor. We ask, Lord, that you would um, rightly communicate the word through him. Lord, that you would uh, give him confidence in his pronouncement of what he's found in your word to bring to us. And uh, bless him as he does so. Bless us as we hear all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. As you're seated, I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn and open them to the Gospel according to Mark. Uh, we are in week seven. Uh, in our little journey through this shortest of gospel narratives. And today we are in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We'll be looking at the parable of the sower and reading together verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And so now that you've had a moment to sit, to grab your Bibles, would you stand with me yet again for the reading of God's Word. I invite you to read out loud along with me. At the end of the reading, I will say that this is the Word of the Lord. I invite you to respond in true worship and praise by saying thanks be to God. Let's begin. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it had withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up, increasing, yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path, where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And other 
others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Remind you that in Mark's gospel, we have the least amount of Jesus' teaching. In fact, uh, uh, Luke and Matthew each contain over 20 uh, parables of Jesus in their gospel narratives, while Mark only contains eight. Uh, and, and I said when we talked about this in the introduction to Mark's gospel, uh, this is not because the teachings of Jesus are unimportant, but Mark's entire focus and goal in this gospel, which is the first of the synoptic gospels written, is to give us a picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to look upon him in his person and his work. And he includes his teaching because his teaching, as I said, is not unimportant, but it springs from the wellspring of who he is and what he has done. And so here, Mark stacks several of these parables together in Mark, what we would call Mark chapter 4. Again, I remind you, Mark uh, wasn't sitting there with the scroll and then decide, okay, that's the end of chapter 3. Let's write a big 4 right here and we'll carry on. But as we have come to know it as Mark chapter 4, at this point in the narrative, Mark decided by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to stack these parables together. And so the next couple of weeks, we'll be dealing with these. But today is the longest. And what's interesting is that while Mark's gospel is the shortest gospel, while his gospels contain the least number of parables and the least amount of Jesus' actual teaching, this particular parable, while it is included in Matthew's gospel and it's included in Luke's gospel, Mark actually contains the, the largest number of words as it pertains to this particular parable, which means in a small way, he actually gives us a greater amount of detail about this particular parable. This is interesting as well because it is here in this parable, in the corollary uh, passages of Matthew and Luke, that we see is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. We know if we look at Matthew and Luke's gospel and the teachings of Jesus there, that we have things like the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we do not so much have parables as we have precepts that Jesus is teaching. Really, if we look at the Sermon on the Mount in particular, we can see that Jesus is, in one way, shape, or form, expositing the law of God. And so he's literally teaching in precepts, in in expositional form the law of God in the Sermon on the Mount. But there comes a transitionary point in Jesus' ministry that in Matthew and Luke's gospel hinges on this moment when Jesus teaches this parable. And so now we begin to understand why all of a sudden the disciples are coming to him and being like, hey, what, what's going on? Because something has changed, something is different. Where before Jesus is going throughout 
uh, Judea, and he's teaching, and he's teaching in ways that they're perhaps a little more familiar. We might uh, remember the words, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And so Jesus is taking some of the things, the teachings that they have known, and he's bringing greater light uh, to these things, especially, as I said, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does not change the law, but exposes the law for what it is. And shows the people where they have been taught that was good enough if they just merely did not do the actual acts uh, that were said that they should not do. Or if they refrained from doing the things that they were told to refrain from doing, that that was good enough. But in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, wait a minute, no, 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 no. It's not enough that you did not do what you were not supposed to do or that you did what you were supposed to do for the keeping of God's law is found in the heart. That even in thinking about doing those things, you have actually transgressed God's law. You've broken God's law. And so God, Jesus does not change the law. Uh, some people would say he elevates the law. That even is not really true. He brings greater illumination to the truth of the law that was there all along. But here, now, Jesus teaches in a different way. He teaches in what Luke and Matthew and Mark call parables. And some people may think, oh, these are cute little stories that are easily understood. Don't you understand this? Well, the disciples didn't understand. That's why we see them coming in the text and saying, Jesus, like, what, what's going on here? Why, why are you teaching in this way? What do these things Mean that suddenly his teaching had transitioned and changed. It's no longer these clear, cut and concise precepts exposing God's law. Now it's it's these strange stories that Jesus, in teaching them, doesn't actually say. And this is what it means. He just leaves the people hanging there, scratching their heads, wondering. What manner of teaching is this? Which leads to the question that Mark has been giving to us all along. What manner of person is this? Who is this Jesus who teaches in this way? And so we see that there is a change that happens here. Uh, if we were to try to go through and figure out in the three years of Jesus' ministry when this took place, it seems like it took place in the second year of Jesus' ministry. So there's almost a sense of there has been some time here through the Jesus' travels throughout Judea, through his teaching in all of these cities, through the miracles and the signs and wonders that have followed his ministry. There has been some time to show who this is. To show the truth, the veracity of what Jesus had said at the beginning of his ministry when he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent ye therefore and believe in the gospel. And so there's been some time that people have had with this and now comes this transition. And we see him use parables. And so our text today is kind of divided into three parts. We have verses 1 through 9, which gives us a bit of context to what's happening in this moment. 
and the parable itself. We see in that three primary uh, types of characters in the parable. We see, number one, that there is a sower. We see, number two, that another particular character in the, in the story, it's, it's kind of odd to think about it this way, but another type of character in Jesus' story is the seed. So we have the sower and we have the seed. And there's a third odd character in the parable, and that is the soil. In fact, so great has been uh, the three things that are listed here that throughout the ages, people go back and forth between calling this the parable of the sower or the parable of the seed or the parable of the soils. So for our use today, we're going to say that this is the parable of the sower and the seed and the soils. Uh, because these are our three main. May I have someone please open the door for my brother there in the back. Not only do we have the sower and the seed and the soil, but we notice that in this there are four different types of soil in Jesus' parable. There is soil that is compared to being a compacted path. And there is uh, soil that is compared to being a rocky, shallow soil. There is thorny soil, soil that seems to be good soil, but it is overcrowded by thorns and thistles. And then last of all, there is good soil. And so in verses 1 through 9, we have just sort of the context and the parable that's given to us. In verses 10 through 12, we have Jesus discussing the purpose of, of these parables as the disciples ask. And then the third part of our text, verses 13 through 20, we actually get Jesus' own explanation for this parable, which tells us at the very least one thing, and that is that the sower and the seed and the soil cannot be just anything that we think that it should be or feel like in it. Well, I feel like the seed is kind of like this or that, or I feel like the soil is this thing. And no, we have Jesus' explanation here in the text, and that is what the text is about. And so let's look again at the parable as Jesus tells it. Notice we talked about this last week, but the context that's given to us is a great crowd that has gathered around. And we've noticed now that everywhere that Jesus goes, uh, crowds are sure to follow. Uh, and in those crowds, what do we have? Are these all uh, heartfelt, devoted followers of Jesus that are gathering around? No, we already know, we've already seen that there is a mixture of people that have gathered around Jesus. So let's talk about what that mixture looks like. We see, uh, first of all, kind of chasing after the crowds and following after Jesus is one group of people who are described as the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Almost everywhere Jesus goes now, there is someone there, a, a contingent of the scribes and Pharisees that are there following Jesus around and trying to entrap him. We already know uh, from the previous chapters that in chapter 3, that uh, chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, with their enemies. The Herodians were not the Pharisees' friends, but they knew uh, that the enemy of my enemy might be my friend. And so uh, they go 
and they conspire with the Herodians against Jesus, how they might destroy him. So again, the, these Pharisees are not following Jesus around because they want to receive anything from him, but rather so that they can catch him out, so they can entrap him in some way, shape, or form or another, so that they could drag him before the elders and, uh, and condemn him for breaking God's law in some way, shape, or form. What else do we see? We see that there are people of great need that have gathered around Jesus. We already have seen uh, lepers and uh, people bringing their paralytic friends. We, we, we see Jesus healing these different people, uh, people who are uh, possessed with unclean and evil spirits who are also kind of drawn around. And, and, and we see kind of two things happening there. One, we see the evil spirits speaking out and, and stirring up trouble in, in a very odd way by actually telling the truth about Jesus. But because of where this truth is coming from, it is stirring up trouble. And we see Jesus exercising divine authority over these unclean spirits, commanding them to be quiet and then shutting up. But then not just that, Jesus then with that same divine authority, commanding those evil spirits to come out of those people and Jesus delivering these needy people from all kinds of sickness and disease and even from things like unclean spirits. We will see as we continue to study throughout the Gospels that there are also children that are following with perhaps most likely with their parents and relatives who are following along. So I want you to think about this crowd. We have people then that are there. We have the disciples there. We know that there were many who were called disciples of Jesus, but that we could say were truly heartfelt followers of Jesus. In fact, uh, in verse 10 of our text today, it says, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. What does this mean? It means that uh, when it says Jesus was alone, that it does not mean he was truly alone. Uh, he actually had not only the 12, but others of those truly heartfelt, devoted followers that were gathered around as well. And, and so we have this mixture of this crowd. They're pressing in. I want you to think about that for a moment. Just think about that mixture. Think about where they might be coming from. And what does it mean? It means that there are some people that are likely sort of being drugged along, right? Perhaps even a child has drugged along someone. And in their wonder and awe of this Jesus that they've heard about, perhaps their friend was the, the, the son or daughter of the leper that was cleansed or the paralytic man that was, was delivered and set free and told that not only could he rise up and take his bed and walk, but his sins were forgiven. Uh, and perhaps a child has drugged their parents along with them alongside the Sea of Galilee, for they heard that Jesus was there and he was teaching. And so we have some filled with wonderment and awe, and we have others that are kind of like just along for the ride. You may have others that are not so much uh, interested in hearing what Jesus has to say, but maybe interested in what Jesus might be able to do for them. And so even their heart is mixed in a in a, in a way where they are they're seeking him, but maybe not even for all the right reasons. And then 
of course, as we've said, there are some who are there not to receive anything from Jesus at all, but rather to try and entrap him. And so there's this mixture of people in this crowd. Now, it's easy as we read the text to just think that, oh, Jesus was just famous and all these people were there because they wanted to see him and wanted to follow him in the right way. As we read through the Gospels, we find just how quickly many of these people in the crowd will pick up and leave uh, Jesus behind until at one point only the twelve remain. Jesus says to them, will, will you go also? Interesting, Peter being the one that responds and what does he say? Where are we going to go? To, to where will we go, he says. You alone have the words that lead to eternal life. And so uh, there's this mixture of people here and they're pressed in around Jesus. And so what does he do? He, he has fishermen around him. They're on their home court. They have a little bit of home, home court advantage, if you will. And so he speaks to Peter, James, and John, Andrew, perhaps. He's like, hey, is your dad around? Can we get a boat? Do you still have a boat around here? Let's get a boat. And so he's not looking to steal anything, but they borrow a boat. And Jesus gets in the boat, not to get away from the crowd, but what happens is he gets enough separation that he can get out into the boat. And the boat becomes kind of a platform, if you will. And the people surround him on the seashore, and it becomes kind of an open-air amphitheater. And from that place, Jesus is able then to begin to teach. And so here, and imagine, imagine you've heard some of the teachings of Jesus. You've heard uh, this thing, how he, he exposed the law in this Sermon on the Mount. And so there's some people coming that may just want to hear what Jesus has to say. What truths is he going to unveil? And so he begins and and you kind of press in a little bit. And maybe you're trying to get to the front so you can hear just a little bit better. You don't have to elbow the person next to you and say, hey, what did he say? And Jesus begins to teach and he grabs their attention. He says, listen. Hey, listen, listen up. Everyone starts to get quiet. And so Jesus says, Behold, the sower went out to sow. It's funny, uh, one of the older commentators uh, comments on this passage, and they actually had the opportunity to go and visit the Sea of Galilee. And as they were walking alongside the Sea of Galilee, they actually came upon this one portion on their journey as they were walking, and they stopped. Because suddenly, right here on the side of the Sea of Galilee, they looked and they had the path. And there was this rocky outcropping nearby. And then right on the other side of the rocky outcropping, there was like these thorns and thistles that were growing out. And then just beyond that, there was like this uh, field that had begun to bring up a harvest of fruit there in good soil. They, they were like stopped in their tracks and they said, here I stand in the parable of the good sower. And so perhaps that's even happening. Maybe there was even a sower walking by as Jesus began to teach and their eyes are drawn to a particular person as he actually is there. Maybe he's even like 
stopping and he's like picks up on what Jesus is saying as he like throws his seed. It's like, and some fell on the path. And the guy's like, wait a minute. <laughs> yes? <laughs> and, and he sows his, sows his seed. And the people are listening. He says, some sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some fell along the path. And birds came and devoured. You almost imagine as that sower throws the seed and all of a sudden the birds come down. If anyone has ever sown seed, you understand that the job has only half begun once you actually get the seeds in the ground. Just this last week, by God's providence, uh, we sowed our seeds in the ground for our, our, our backyard garden this week. And we have backyard chickens. And so immediately uh, we had to go on the defense as we began to sow these seeds. And it was kind of this this race, Antoinette would sow the seed into the soil, and I'd be racing with uh, cartloads of mulch to try and put over the soil to deter anything that might want to get in there. But even then, they're trying to break into the garden and, and, and peck at those. They would just love to eat up all those seeds. And so we, you have to, you're, you're, not, you're not done once you just put that seed in the ground. You go on the defense, and, and here, there is no defense on the path. A lot of times what would happen in some of these uh, fields in the Near East at that time is you, you've heard in Scripture it talks about the highways and the byways. Well, these highways and byways were not the kind of highways that we think of. There were the main roads, but the highways were these compacted paths that had been used for years and years through some of these fields. They didn't fence them off in the same way that we do. It was more of kind of an open range kind of deal. And, and you might have these rocks that would be set up that would delineate one person's property from another, but there weren't necessarily fences. And the roads could be dangerous, especially at night. And so many people would make chart their own path uh, through some of these fields. And the more people that went, you know, it starts out kind of like just, oh, it looks like someone walked through the field. And then someone, well, someone else went there. Well, maybe I'll walk there too. It must be a good path. And then now everyone's walking there. And, and now there's, it just begins to get beat down. And there's a, a worn out path where nothing is growing in that path. Those were the highways. They were kind of shortcuts that were hopefully safer than walking on the road. And the sowers at that time, they wouldn't go through and plow those up. They would just walk through their field and they would sow their seed and some would fall on that path. And guess what? Nothing would grow. And there was no protection there. There was nowhere for the seed to go down into the ground because it was hard, compacted soil. And it was exposed. And so what would happen? The birds who were watching would come down and they would consume the seed and devour it. Jesus says other seed fell on rocky ground. And what was the problem with the rocky ground? He says it didn't have much soil. And so what would happen? There would be a little bit of soil there. The seed would be able to enter into the ground. And, and there would be a little bit of moisture and enough sun. And that seed would germinate. And it would spring up immediately. But because there wasn't enough soil, there was nowhere for the roots to grow. And so it was just shallow. And Jesus says the sun comes up. And it was scorched, it withers. 
all through the Old Testament, God uses this imagery through the Psalms and the prophets especially of the grass or the flower that is here today and withers and fades and is gone tomorrow and is no more. Other seed, he says, verse 7, fell among the thorns and thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. So here we have what seems to be good soil. It seems even to be soil that's deep enough for something to grow. But then as it grows, before it has the opportunity to bear fruit, it's choked out by the thorns and the thistles that grow up around it. And then yet again, the fourth soil is good soil. And the seed goes into the ground. It germinates. It sprouts. It grows. Its roots grow deep. And it brings forth a harvest, and Jesus says, some yielding 30, 60, and 100 fold. Interestingly, here in verse 9, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And now imagine you were there. You're, you've pressed in. You've listened to this. You've been waiting for Jesus to teach, and, 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 he, and he ends, and he says, And let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Mysterion that we use 
when we even talk about the sacraments. It says, to you who has been given the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And, and you'll see Jesus from this point begins to only speak to the people outside in parables. But it seems like as the disciples and the others who have fallen gather around, he begins to expound on what these parables mean. Many have gotten this wrong because they, they say maybe Jesus looking around, uh, some of the liberal scholars have said maybe Jesus looking around realized his point wasn't really getting across. And so maybe we should just use more simple, you know, sort of agrarian stories that they can really connect with and relate to. But that's debunked in what Jesus is about to say here in the text. He says that there's purpose in this. And what is the purpose? He says, so that, verse 12, they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Here he's hearkening back to the prophets who prophesied about the time that when the Messiah would come, there was something that was going to happen with God's people, where there was going to be that distinction, that division, where in many ways he would be rejected. John 1, remember, he came to a people who were his own, but by his own was rejected by them. And yet there would still, as God had always done with his people, there would be a remnant. There would be a, there would be a, a, a group of people that God himself had preserved for himself that would be given, so to speak, as Jesus just said, the mysteries of God. And so he said to them, what it, this saying from the prophets, it, it harkens back, and one, one of them is Isaiah 42, verses 19 through 20. I'll read it for you myself here very quickly. Isaiah 42, 19 through 20. He says, Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind is my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Verse 18 says, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. And, and there's something that's happening that people of Israel here in Isaiah are being referred to as God's servant. He's saying, they're blind. They're deaf. You may not, they may not look like it. Their eyes are open. They see, seem to be able to see other things that are going on. They seem to be able to hear you when you call to them. But when God displays his handiwork, when his voice goes out, their eyes are veiled. And their ears are stopped up. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is not telling these parables as a cute way for simple-minded people to understand it. Rather, the reason that there is this transition is that these parables are given as a sign of judgment. A sign of judgment against those whose eyes they have covered and whose ears they have stopped up. Remember, what did we just see in the text last week? 
we saw the scribes and the Pharisees, the very ones who had the words of God, just like in the Advent, when the wise men came to Jerusalem seeking the king who was to be born, the scribes were there. And when they said, where shall we find this child? Remember, they knew where to look. They told him, Bethlehem. Look, we can look at our scriptures. We can see plain as day. It's Bethlehem. That's where the child will be born. And what do we see not happen? As the wise men packed up their horses and camels and traveled the short distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to seek the Savior. The scribes stayed in Jerusalem. The wise men come saying, we've seen a great sign in the sky. A star that is declaring to us the birth of a great king. We've come to seek him. The scribes say, oh great, we know where he is. Here's, here's your map of west directions. Boom, there you go. On your way. Bon voyage. Have a great trip. Send us a postcard. The very ones that were meant to know who knew, they, they meant they knew. But they stay behind. In our text last week, what did we see? We saw these same group of people seeing the handiwork of God in front of their eyes through the signs and wonders that God was doing by the work of the Spirit through the Son. They said, it's the work of the devil. This is not the work of God. It's the work of the devil. And there's the transition to judgment. That seeing, they may not see. And hearing, they may not hear. Lest they turn and be forgiven. These aren't just cute little stories. This is serious business. But then he turns and he begins to give an explanation. And it's here that we begin to see that Jesus is giving not just a key to this parable, but really to all the parables. Something that we need to understand about parables is that generally parables have one main central point. A lot of people will try to take the parables and, and make every little piece a, a different thing and allegorize everything in a parable. You get off into the weeds when you do that. But generally, each parable has one central and main point. And all of them are in some way, shape, or form connected to salvation. Remember, Jesus is preaching and announcing the kingdom of God. He is inducting the kingdom of God. He's welcoming people into the kingdom of God. And so these stories are about salvation. In receiving them and understanding them and in rejecting them and not understanding them. As we see in the judgment that he declared, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So he says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So we need to tune in. The disciples are tuning in. They're saying, okay, like, then teach us, show us, what, what does this mean? And so Jesus 
begins to break it down. He says, the sower sows the word. And so all of the children that grew up in Sunday school remember the little song, right? Word of God is like a little bitty seed scattered all around. Word of God is like a little bitty seed scattered all around. You got some on the road, some in the weeds. Everywhere you look, you got little bitty seeds. Nobody? Am I the only one? Wow. All right. It's okay. I did that for free. <laughs> donut man? No one had the donut man, huh? No? Salty? No, I'm on my own. All right. Here we go. A little salty. A little salty. All right. I'm going to be salty because nobody uh, <laughs> remembers that and I just embarrassed myself. That's all right. So he says the sower sows the word. So what is he saying? He's saying the seed then is the word. It's the word of God. And it's being sown. And these are the ones. So then he says, so the soil is what? The soil represents people. And who is who are the people it represents? It represented the people who were there gathered around Jesus along the Sea of Galilee. Those who were coming with hearts devoted to him, wanting to follow him. Who are they? They're the good soil. Those who are being drugged along, you, you never know. They, they might come and, and something happens. The spirit moves and, and suddenly this person who, I don't know why I'm here. This person is drugging here, but God moves through his spirit and suddenly you find the seed goes in. It germinates and, and there was good soil there all along. They didn't even know. But there are others gathered there who represent the hard, compacted path, the rocky soil or the thorny Soil. So let's see what Jesus says about this. He says, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. So that they're there. They're recipients of the word being sown. The, the word of God preached to them, declared to them. In this case, literally incarnated to them. Why? Because Jesus is the word of God, John chapter 1. He is the living word. And so it's not merely the written or preached word of God, but in this particular case, as Jesus is telling this parable, it's him. He is the word. And he's there in front of them. And they're receiving the word, the living word of God from God the Father himself, sowed out indiscriminately among them. And yet there are those whose hearts are so hard and compacted that even though they're pelted with the word of God, there's no defense. And remember the, in the parable, Jesus says that the birds came and ate up the seed. But here, who are the birds? He says that Satan himself immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown. And we see this happen so often, don't we? There are those who are privileged enough to have the Word of God preached to them and read to them and sung to them over and over and over again. And yet, it seems like there's never any breakthrough. You, you hear the, the, you know the phrase, in one ear and out the other. Is literally what's happening is the word of God is being sown and immediately Satan is snatching it away. It never is able to enter into the ground. It's never able to then germinate. There's no watering that can take place and get that seed to the place that needs to, to begin to grow 
and it's robbed by the thief who does what thieves do. He seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. He says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. A picture of this is in John chapter 6. as Jesus feeds the 5,000 and they have this great meal and everybody loves Jesus in that moment. They kind of camp out that night. Imagine their bellies being full and sitting under the stars, declaring the glories and majesty of God. Everything is wonderful. They wake up and Jesus is gone, but it's breakfast time. They start wondering where did their meal ticket go? They figure out that he must have gone across the sea, and so they make haste to chase after Jesus. They must get to him sometime around lunchtime. They've fasted through breakfast. There's been no breakfast. It's now lunchtime. They're more hungry than they were when they woke up. And they come seeking Jesus, seeking what he may give them to eat. And where just hours before they were declaring the majesties of God given to them in this one Jesus who is standing before them, suddenly the only thing on the menu is Jesus and they're out. gone. Suddenly the cost of following Jesus just became too high. Here in the text, Jesus says these are ones that endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So many I have seen in the word of faith and prosperity gospel where they come and They've been told all the blessings that they can receive if they will just follow Jesus. And they come, and what happens? They get enrolled into the body of Christ, and suddenly they're surrounded by a kind of family that they've never had before. Suddenly they have at their disposal wisdom, not only through the text of Scripture, but just other people that they've never had in their life before. And, 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 and it's, it's good. It's it's awesome. It's wonderful. It's lovely. And what happens? Well, things start going well. What's, what's going on? There's, there's some natural consequences to the choices that they're beginning to make. And, and they think they are seeing the blessing of God. And, and this is wonderful. And this is working. And then what happens? Suffering comes. Some trial comes. Some tribulation comes. And Suddenly, where once they were the first ones at the door, the first ones to serve, the first ones to give, the first ones to volunteer, suddenly they're missing. And they think, well, maybe this is just a little bit too hard. I just need a break. And a break turns into forever. Ultimately, they, they say, well, I, I tried that Jesus thing. I, I tried it. All I got from my trouble was more trouble. And so all that growth and excitement that seemed to be the prospect of 
a great harvest on its way just withers and dies. It's not long before it becomes so brittle that the wind, just a breath of wind, would cause it to break apart and just blow away like chaff in the wind. Jesus says they have no root. It was so shallow, there was nowhere for that root to grow. And when the tribulation, the trial comes, and just imagine a plant that has such shallow soil. All it takes is a little rainstorm to cause that to all get washed away. Just a breath of wind. In my case, I've made the mistake of blowing it away with my blower. <laughs> Trying to blow these leaves out of the way. Didn't realize my wife put some seeds in a, in, a, in a pot that was just there and just gone. But why is it gone? It's gone because there was no root. Then he says, and others are the ones sown among the thorns. And this is a little different. It seems here that there is root and there's, there's, a dis, there's a distinction in time, it seems like, between the rocky soil and the thorny soil. Both the rocky and the thorny soil end up being, in essence, false converts. It's just a difference in time. Because where the one shoots up immediately but then is washed away by trial and tribulation, the other one grows and it seems to grow well. The growth that, that ensues seems to be a healthy kind of growth. And it's not just this, this quick flash in a pan, tempest in a tea kettle kind of thing. It's, it's, it seems good, but what happens? Jesus says that the thorns are the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things that enter in and choke the word proves unfruitful. It's a dud. Now it's not so much trial and tribulation. These may even endure trial and tribulation for a season, for a time. And what does this look like? Is it days? Is it weeks? Is it months? Is it years? Yes. It's all of those things. But ultimately what ends up happening is they set up their own scale. And in their hearts, the weight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For them, on their scale, which is broken, is lighter than everything else. cares of the world coming. And we all have cares. There's not one of us that are exempt from the cares of this world. But the difference between the good soil and the thorny soil is that the scales on the good soil say that the weight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ always outweighs everything. 
is worth it all. It's only in Jesus. And, and that's what the disciples are experiencing. Remember, he says, to you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. What does this mean? It means that the interpretation of this parable and the reception of God's word into their hearts could only come through this particular relationship with Jesus Christ. Everyone else was outside of that and they all they got was seeds and sowers and birds and rocks and thorns and good soil and fruit. And they're going, what? But it was through their connection with Jesus that now they were brought in to this place where they were actually able to receive the word of God. They were able to receive Jesus. Which would lead Peter to say what we said before. To where will we go? You alone have the words which lead to eternal life. What was Peter saying? He's saying, Jesus, you outweigh everything. We can lose everything in our lives. Our families can abandon us. We can be persecuted. We can be left behind. We can, we can lose it all. But if we have you, we have everything that we need. And that's the truth that every single one of us needs to know, that if we have Jesus, we have all we need. But there are those whose scales are broken and they see the cares of the world. They, they, they look at all their, their, the things that are vying for their attention and their affections. What was it that we prayed this morning at the very beginning of our service? Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise that among the swift and varied changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the parable of the sower and the seed in the soils. see the cares around them, the various changes of life, all these things. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, they, they pull and they decide that matters more. And the thorns come in and they choke out the growth so that it can never bear fruit. Lastly, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones that hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. So in this, this is what we need to understand. The sower is God. And the seed, the seed is Jesus and his word. In this particular sense, when Jesus is telling this parable, it is a very personal thing. The seed is him. It's Jesus. For us and every other disciple and follower, it is Jesus and Scripture itself. It is the very words of God to us. The seed is his word. 
And the soils are the hearers. It's the different people, the receivers. And so truly, this is an indictment against the crowds that are gathered around Jesus. The same is true today. Because there are those who will gather to hear the word of Christ preached. And for some, it's just something to do. It's a sideshow. I mean, what else are we going to do on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon? It's where my friends are. It's where my family is. And so, so I'll go. Or others are perhaps brought kicking and screaming. And in some cases, it's the children who are bringing the parents kicking and screaming. In other cases, it's the parents who are dragging the children kicking and screaming. Still others are coming trying to see if they can catch out these Christians and put them to the test. Some are coming seeking the hand of the giver and not the giver himself. What's interesting is just like in this day, it has been true every day since God scatters the seed of the word indiscriminately. The seed is cast and it is cast over every person. God does not go, oh wait, no, not on them. Let's go over here. And this is a strange thing to wrap my mind around, perhaps yours as well, but that seed is precious. It is dear. It is the dearest thing ever because it is the seed of Christ himself. And yet the lavish grace and mercy of God is that he takes that seed, which is the most precious and dear of all, and he scatters it indiscriminately. What seems like flagrantly, which seems like scandalously, he scatters it. If it's me, I'm going, where's the good soil? Let's dump it all right here. But God is indiscriminately dispersing the seed. Because he's sovereign over not just the casting of the seed, but he is sovereign over the growth of every seed. And he is able cause growth to come from the seeds that are washed and blown away from the rocky soil. Just this week I was talking with somebody who was wrestling with how God brought them to salvation. Essentially it was seemingly at this point through thorny soil. Someone of thorny soil brought them to hear the word of God. And God saved them. 
God is sovereign over the casting of the seed and over its growth. He can cause the, the seeds that are washed and blown away to find good soil. He can cause what the enemy intended for evil to be turned around for good. Those birds who eat the seed then will, through the process that God has ordained, drop that seed, perhaps even on good soil. God is sovereign over the casting and the growth. But one thing is certain, and that is who we are in this story, this parable. We are the soil. The question is, what kind of soil are we? And what kind of soil do we want to be? But there's one problem with that question. No matter how much we want to be other than what we are, soil is incapable of changing itself. The soil that was good in the parable was good because someone had taken the time to prepare it. Someone had gone through and had broken up the fallow and hard ground. They had taken the time to get down and pick out the rocks and to pull out the thorns and the thistles so that the seed could be planted and germinate and sprout and root and grow. And soil is incapable of doing that for itself. You may be here today and you may say, I feel like I've got hard, compacted places of my heart where I want the Word of God to be planted and grow, but I am incapable of breaking up that fallow ground by myself, and you would be right. You may say, I feel like there are places where I'm being drawn away in trial and tribulation and that the, there is something drawing me to run away from Jesus instead of going after him and I don't know how to change it. Or perhaps brother, do you just not understand the pressures of this life, the cares of this life and I feel like they are choking me out. If that's you today, you need to understand that you cannot do it by yourself. But praise God, even as he has given us a good shepherd, he has given us a good sower. And if you are even in the place of remotely desiring that what might be bad soil in your life could be turned into good, it means that the Holy Spirit has already begun to do His work in you. And the invitation to you today is to cry out to God, to trust Him in faith, believing that that must be true. That if there is any desire in me that says, God, I wish that some of these places in my heart, which feel hard and compacted or rocky or thorny, might be turned into good soil, would you please do the work? Jesus said again in John chapter 6 that anyone who comes to him 
he would in no wise cast out. That door remains open and the call is to say, would you come, O God? By your spirit, through the work of your son, would you break up the hard places of my heart? Would you help me as I walk through trials and tribulations Pour the soil on God that my roots can go deep and I won't be washed or blown away by these hardships. God, would you pull away the thorns and the thistles before this fruit is choked out? Soil cannot fix itself, it must be moved upon. So, how is God going to do that? uses means. Just like a sower may come and have to dig with a shovel or a trowel or plow or he may have to get down and use his hands to do these things in the soil. God uses means in our life to do these things. He uses the means of encouragement of other believers. If you're going through Trials and hardships and tribulations, then one of the things that you need is you need other people around you who have withstood trials and tribulations. You can look at their lives and you know they've gone through some stuff. And yet somehow through the stuff, God preserved them. They weren't washed or blown away because of those hardships, those, those trials and those seasons of difficulty. Get to know them. Ask them. How did God preserve them through that time? What was that time like? Have they seen God to be faithful? Was it worth it? And I'll tell you the answer is yes. Because what each of us have found through those trials and those seasons of difficulty is that Jesus is worth it because he's everything. If you're going through times where you feel like the cares of the world are choking you out, look around you and find some of these others who are here who all of us have cares and pressures, pressures in this world. Talk to them. Ask them to pray for you. Meet with you, counsel you. God uses other means, not only the encouragement of other believers, but He uses the preaching of the Word itself. As the preaching of the Word of Christ goes out and the seed is dispersed, the Word of God, which is also like a sword, is like that plow that comes and can help to break up those hard places. The Word of God is living and active, the preacher in Hebrews says. It is able to divide soul from spirit and bone from marrow. God uses the preaching of the Word itself to sow the seed, to break up the ground, to water the seed. God uses the sacraments Baptism, the Lord's Supper. We call these not just any old means. We call them means of grace. 
conduit of grace that is extended to God's people so that week in and week out they may come and know that there is one place and one time at the very least where they may with boldness approach the throne of grace and find ever-present help in time of need. God uses these means. He uses the means of scripture reading and prayer. And believe it or not, contrary to what those with rocky soil want to hear, God even uses things like affliction and suffering as means to create good soil in our lives. What does that mean? It means if you are going through a season of affliction and suffering, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Because through this crucible of suffering, God is drawing you to himself. Cry out to him. Take him at his word when he said, if you will draw near to me, I will draw near to you. God's not waiting for you to close the whole distance. But like the good father in the parable of the prodigal son, as he saw his son from afar off making his way toward him, did he just wait on the porch? Did he sit back? Did he light up a cigarette and wait for him to come so he could just say, it's about time you showed up? No. That father with indignity pulled up his robes, tied them together like a warrior, and he ran after his son. He closed the distance. He didn't wait for him to make it all the way back, but he ran to him and he threw his arms around him. And he, even in the midst of his stench and, and, and his mess, he wrapped his arms around him, kissed him, took his own robe off and covered the shame of his sin, took a ring of sonship and put it on his finger and said, my son who is lost is found and who is dead is alive killed the fatted calf and he threw a party because his son came home. Jesus is not waiting for you. God is not waiting for you to make it all the way back so that he can rub it in your face. He promised that if you would draw near to him, he would draw near to you. And I promise you, he's going to close the distance. And you wouldn't even be coming hadn't by his spirit first been drawn in so God uses means submit yourself to them and find how the Holy Spirit will work through these means as you ask him to make you soft and pliable good soil that the seed of the word of God Jesus himself can your heart and that seed can germinate and root and grow and produce a harvest to the glory of God. And notice Jesus isn't worried about how much it is. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. It's not a matter of comparing who got 30, who got 60, who got 100. The fact is 
God who is sovereign to sow, who is sovereign to break up fallow ground and remove rocks and thorns from the soil, is the one who is sovereign over the harvest. It's up to us to just simply say, God, do it in me. That's the cry of your heart today. I pray that you would not delay in asking that of your good heavenly Father who loves you and send his son Jesus indiscriminately to be sown into your heart. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for your word today and for this parable. A reminder to us that though this parable was given for judgment to those who are outside, to those who are brought near by the blood of Jesus, they are a grace to us. Would you now extend that grace to our hearts in such a way that we would be able to not only hear the word, but receive it. And that that seed of the word of God could germinate and root and grow in our hearts so that it might bring forth a great harvest to your glory. God, each and every one of us have different areas and places of our hearts that today may be compacted and hard, that may even be rocky or thorny. We are unable, but you are able. Would you come today by the power of your Holy Spirit through the work of your Son, Jesus? Would you break up the fallow ground, remove the rocks, tear out the thorns, so that we might be good soil for your planting. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion. May we all today feed on Christ in our hearts by faith. God bless you.